Take your Bibles, if you would. And uh, we're in First Thessalonians. And uh, we've been working through. I want to pick up last week where I left off. I actually, and I don't know which service I did it in, but I actually gave the wrong... When we were talking about church planning, in one service I said Lake Stevens, in one service I said Snohomish, and you would think I'd get my own announcement right, right? I didn't. So it's actually Lake Stevens that we're talking with uh, Pastor Nate heading a cascade and us targeting uh, as a place where we the next plant will be. So I want you to be aware of that. If you would begin to pray about that, begin to ask God to give us the leaders and the finances and all that, the target, where, how, when, um, that kind of thing, uh, and that that would be really uh, helpful and cool. And we'll give you updates on that as that becomes more and more concrete. Uh, we're moving that way, but it is Lake Stevens, so just make that. If I gave you Snohomish, that's the wrong one. All right, let's go to First uh, Thessalonians. We've been in these uh, two verses, and I want to take it a little farther this morning. It says now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Last week we uh, showed you this target diagram. And uh, one of the things is that uh, you could say, well, you know, that, that the center is more important. What well, we want to point out, all three of these pieces are critical uh, pieces. It's not really one of... Priority, it's really one of emphasis. Uh, in turn, it's not, I should say, not value. It's, it's more one of emphasis. I was reading uh, Francis Chan's book on marriage called You and Me Together, Marriage in the Light of Eternity. I don't know if you've become familiar with that or not, but he was talking about the idea how everything that we do is a dress rehearsal for heaven. Now, this is not a new idea. Bill, Bill Heimer captured it years ago in his book, Destined for the Throne. And by the way, I'd recommend... Both books highly uh, in terms of reading. But the central idea in Chan's book is that marriage is not just about us or for us, but is designed by God to get us ready for heaven. Uh, Gary Thomas, in his book Sacred Marriage, says, God didn't design marriage to make you happy. He designed marriage to make you holy. And Paul has this same concept in mind when he says that Christian fellowship this one anothering that we're talking about is a dress rehearsal for what will take place in heaven. All right? I don't think we often think about it that way. God is teaching us how to fellowship in anticipation of eternally fellowshipping in heaven. We will be with one another for a long time. Right? Many times we don't think about that. Now, Harold Fickett in his commentary on Thessalonians does something kind of fun here. His commentary is called Keep On keeping on and he notes with not a little irony that this is easier said than done when he quotes this little ditty that says to dwell above with saints i love to me that will be glory to dwell below with saints i know well brother that's a different story all right and i think all of us can relate to that and have had experience with that but that's why paul was exhorting the thessalonians to do this more and more in other words You never arrive. You never get there where you fully love people and then you're done, right? Uh, Learning to love is a lifelong journey uh, with the Lord. And it's about him teaching us how to love and teaching us the qualities of love. Most of us start out thinking we're really good at it 
and the farther we go, we start to realize not so much. And we really need the Lord's help in how to actually love because actually doing it versus the words of doing it are quite, are quite different. There's something else uh, in this that I think is really important uh, that could be easily missed. Because you're saying, well, Steve, why, these are just two verses. Why are you hanging on them so much, right? Uh, I, I think when you're reading that, there's something that could, you could glitch right over. And I, I want to point out the transformation in Paul's own spirit. Right? He went from Saul to Paul, and in that, there was an incredible shift in who he was as a person. He went from um, Saul the Pharisee, to Paul, the apostle. And how radical is it that Paul, who at one time was the Pharisee of Pharisees, is exhorting others to brotherly love? Have you ever thought of the irony of that? Right? If you read about Paul's early life, uh, not, if you capture brotherly love, not so much in there, right? And, uh, and yet this becomes the main emphasis and uh, I want to suggest that Paul is conscientiously stepping away from the spirit of a Pharisee. Now, what's the spirit of a Pharisee? A spirit of the Pharisee is um, legalism, self-righteousness, mostly based on outward appearance, right? In essence, it's all about having the right performance without the need to have the right heart. And we do this all the time if you think about it. We do this... In our job situations, we do this in our marriages, we do this with our children, where we try to get the right um, product, right? But we don't necessarily care whether we have the right heart or not in the matter. And what Paul's saying is that the right heart really matters. A right heart with God really matters, and a right heart with others really matters. And that's why we use this target and designate right relationships in the center of it, because this is an emphasis that Paul uh, pulls out here. He's no longer a Pharisee. He's now a person of the heart. Think of what a miracle that is. Think of what a miracle that is that God has done in us to make us like that. A person in right relationship with Jesus. Notice now he still tells the church what right behavior is, right? We went through verses 1 through 8, all about the issue of sexuality. He doesn't lighten up on that. And he's very strong on doctrine. Right? Most of the New Testament epistles, uh, the doctrine of the church that we use, come from Paul's writings. Right? So he's, it's not that those are less than, it's just what is the engine of it. Notice it's all built on the foundation of a right heart, what Paul calls love. Agape love that God has for us, and then brotherly love or phileo love that we have for each other. If you look at the New Testament, it's full of one another statements. I don't know if you've ever looked at that or done a little study in that, but it, it's crowded with it. One writer cites 59 such statements in the New Testament, these one another statements. Another writer uh, cites 22. Gene Getz, in his uh, landmark book, Building Up One Another, consolidates the list into 12. And here's the list right here in his book. These are the one another statements that he consolidates and when you look at it, you realize that's a lot of what you experience uh, when you're a Christian. When you first come to Christ and you run into a family, this a family of God, this is what you're running. But most of the time, the problem with this is we start clicking this off as a list of to-dos, right? Do this one well, do this one poorly, 
uh, kind of thing. I'd like you to look at it a different way. Look at the list in, in total this morning and uh, kind of run your eyes over. But think of this in the light of heaven. All right? Think of this in the light of heaven. Won't this be what's going on in heaven when we get there? Isn't this what it's going to look like? So this is not so much a to-do list as a to-be list. This is what we're supposed to be like with each other. This is how we're supposed to relate to each other. And when you have this list with eternity in mind, it suddenly makes sense why we're supposed to be about that list now. Why we're supposed to grow in these qualities. The goal is to keep us all pointed in the right direction, seeking the same target, which is heaven. But far more than that, that we would experience Jesus and a bit of heaven as we one another each other now. We don't have to wait for heaven for it to happen. We can do this with each other now and experience uh, the fellowship that the Holy Spirit gives. Paul's admonishment is to love one another. What he's saying is, get used to now what is going to be standard operating procedure in heaven. All right? This is how it's going to work. So start getting used to the format now. Uh, live eternally now. And I, I want to point out, too, that this is not just a great suggestion. You know, This is really, we must. All right? Paul's pointing this out that this is a great um, emphasis of Jesus himself. The great calling of the Bible. Uh, you can find it in Deuteronomy. You can find it in Matthew and several other places. Love the Lord your God, right? We know this with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And what's the contingency attached to that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's something that Jesus was targeting. And so Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's the true center of the target. The whole target's important. You've got to have all those pieces, but the order of it is important as well. And so I, I want to repoint us towards that, one anothering each other, especially in light of moving towards more service and stuff. Yes, that will mean change. Yes, that means we'll have to meet new people. Yes, that means you'll have to get out of your comfort zone. And that's because it's not about us, it's about the kingdom. That's why we're, we're doing that. We're going to move forward. Uh, when uh, somebody will say, couldn't we just keep our church small and just have fellowship together and one another in, you know, just together? And I'm going, when all the people in Mill Creek are saved, then yes, you can. All right? Till then, we have to have an outward emphasis and keep reaching out. And one of the ways we can do that is by making more space available. So, again, I want you to have this picture of this target. Very important to have right doctrine. Very important uh, to have right behavior. All you have to do is have someone in your family not behave right, and you recognize really quickly how big that matters. But beyond those two, they should generate a right heart. Well, that's how we work at it from a human viewpoint, right? We work from the outside in. That's not how God works. He works from the inside out. He wants to give us a right heart because why? He knows then right behavior will happen and he knows if we have a right heart with him, then right doctrine will happen as well. So important picture. um, Keep that in mind when you're thinking about things and let's move a little farther on into uh, 1 Thessalonians. There's a second, I'm calling these uh, kingdom calls. These are 
Kingdom things that Paul is laying on the church's heart for targets and saying, these are things that you're called to. And when he's talking to the Thessalonian church, he goes on, if you look verses 11 and 12, that they would also aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so um, the three things are keep your cool, if you put them in English, don't be a busybody, and then work with your hands. Let's look at these um, together. The first one uh, is to make your ambition to lead a quiet life. What does that mean? Um, for somebody who's loud like me, uh, that, oh, I'm dead before we get started, right? Um, but if you look at the Greek word, and the Greek word there's osesin, can't quite pronounce it right, but it, it's this, to be quiet in the sense that you don't get mad and fly off the handle saying something for which you will later be sorry. Anybody been there? Hello. Right? That's me. Right? English translation? Keep your cool. Peace, baby. Okay? Sorry, 60s. All right. Um, But the idea here is to not be a hot-tempered person. Apparently, in the ruckus, in the chaos of Thessalonica um, and all that was going on, uh, people felt like they had to take matters into their own hands and they resorted to things, and um, they got hot, right? Fickett says in his commentary, and I quote, one of the quickest ways for a Christian to lose their influence and destroy the good they're trying to accomplish is to get mad and tell somebody off. When they do this, when they do this, they not only hurt themselves, and I might add the person that they have, to borrow a phrase from a good buddy of mine, projectile vomited uh, all over the other person with, but they also do irreparable damage to the cause of Christ. Right? Have you ever been witnessing somebody and lost your temper and they went, oh, thanks for talking, right, gone. Uh, I think all of us can wrestle with that. Galatians lists this uh, quality. Galatians 5, if you look there, this is the passage that says, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They are contrary to each other or in opposition to each other so that you cannot do what you want. And in that list, uh, Paul lists uh, a bunch of big sins and a bunch of big sins. And in the middle, he has a whole group of lists that really essentially, if you boil them down, they're sins of the tongue, right? That little flapper, right, that gets out of control. And in that, one of the things he lists is fits of rage. What do we call fits of rage in a two-year-old? Temper tantrum. You ever see a two-year-old throw a temper tantrum in a store? Right? right? Just kicking and screaming. Why? I'm going to get my way, whatever it takes, and I will embarrass you to death and create such a ruckus that you will have to give in to me. Right? Okay, now do adults throw temper tantrums? Right? Yes, we do. And so Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, Don't do that. Be quiet. Strive to be quiet in your spirit. By quiet, it doesn't mean passive. It doesn't mean Johnny Milktoast guys. It doesn't. He's talking about not living with a spirit of anger. You can be plenty strong. Don't confuse meekness with weakness. All right? Moses killed a man with his bare hands, and yet he was called the meekest man on the face of the earth. It's not a lack of power. 
by definition, those who have the most power have to be the most gentle. And so uh, in this, James gives us a cautionary tale. It says, remember, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Uh, You may think that's what you have to do to accomplish your result, but it's not going to produce the righteousness of God. I, I personally got royally burned on this verse back in 1988. And uh, we'll have told the story before, tell another time, not enough time this morning. But God talked to me about, Steve, you have an angry spirit. And, and it comes out in almost everything you do. And uh, I believe part of why God left me, kept me, made me, helped me stay single until I was 38, Pick which adjective you'd like there. Um, was to make me safe enough that I wasn't angry in my spirit anymore, so I'd be safe for Pam. And uh, because I come from a background of anger, I come from a background of rage, a background of anger and temper tantrums uh, all through generational line. And God was very serious about breaking that. And uh, I wish I could say that that is completely eradicated and out. Uh, I'm much better than I used to be and I catch it quicker than I used to and I still flare. Dad, gum it. Okay? And I'll bet you some of you can relate to that battle. That's what Paul's talking about here. Uh, let me be really um, careful but clear here. The place where I've seen this, where, where I've seen where this has done the most irreparable damage is in homes where we give ourselves as parents permission to lose it in front of our kids. And we kind of just projectile vomit all over them with our anger and our rage. And then we wonder why they have no interest in our Jesus. It's a serious sin. This is not good people with just a few little quirks. It's a serious issue. What we would not do in public somehow seems admissible in our homes, but it has a horrific price tag. Always remember, the deepest one-anothering that we do is with our family. It's in our homes. So what Pam and I have tried to do is say that it has to be more real at home than here, right? Because it's pretty easy to posture here and it's pretty easy to be Pastor Steve and that kind of stuff and to know, you know, I've done this for 35 years. I know what's expected when I walk in the door and I can smile. Hi, Amy, right? And I can do that kind of stuff. Um, But what we've set for our own personal target is that it would be more real at home than it is at church because we know then that if we have that, then this is just what we do anyways, right? We don't have to change anything. And that has been really helpful. So uh, if that's a point that the Holy Spirit is using to uh, encourage and instruct at this point, take that as from him. The second one, Paul says, is mind your own business. Now, This exhortation is found not only in 1 Thessalonians, but 2 Thessalonians, and it's emphasized in both places. So uh, uh, it seems to be, what what set this up is the um, expectation that the parousia, the second coming of Christ, was going to happen right away. 
And people got in a lather over it. They got excited about it, right? That's not a bad thing. And, and they were pumped about it to the point, though, where they said, you know what, he's coming back so soon we don't have to work anymore. And they basically kind of quit their jobs and they went and sat on a hill and waited for Jesus to return. Wouldn't that be nice to do on a sunny day like we've had? You know, hey, we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. Awesome. And uh, But then what happens is, you know, the old saying, idleness is the devil's workshop, right? And uh, that kind of stuff. And as they were idle, they had to find something to do. So the fact that they weren't busy, they then became busy bodies. All right. And so then all this intrigue and we would call it drama, right, uh, started to kick up in the church itself because people were sitting around all day not working, not thinking about what was important or what they had to do. And so they started to become busybodies. Um, we would call it sticking our nose in somebody else's business, right? And, um, you know, if you look at America, that, uh, you know, gossip and slander are now multi-million dollar enterprises. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable, right? What used to be called uh, evil and a, and a deep sin to be avoided is now flashed across magazines and I don't even have to list the names of them. You know them and, you know, the TV shows that slant that way and, and that kind of stuff. But, but I, I want to say this. On this one, it's not just Hollywood that has the corner on the market. All right? The church, we, Jesus' sons and daughters, have long been known for our whispers, our accusations, our slanders, and our meddling. Uh, We've been involved in it. We are experts in throwing each other under the bus, and there's a long trail of bodies as evidence. Uh, Nine-tenths of almost all church splits start out as what? Gossip, slander, whispers, somebody being a busybody and sticking their nose in somebody else's business. Then somebody gets offended and then it becomes a dissension that isn't taken care of. And then after dissension, it becomes a faction. What's a faction? I now recruit people to my side of the argument, right? And we call that a church split. How many church splits do you think have happened in the history of the world over these two issues we just talked about? I want to suggest it's it's huge. If there's one area that our sin nature is still in full display, it's this area. All right? And we not only cause harm to others, but to ourselves as well. Uh, and we forget that. Proverbs uh, 26.17 says this, Whoever meddles in a quarrel, in other words, somebody's business that isn't your own, but you jump in the middle of it, it's like uh, grabbing a dog by the ears. Okay, So think about uh, a barking dog and you run up to the barking dog and grab it by the ears. What's the barking dog going to do? The barking dog starts to become a biting dog. right? Have you ever gotten bit by jumping into the middle of somebody else's business and trying to tell them what to do or trying to steer it for them or trying to, right? It just, and we just incessantly seem to feel the need to do this which tells you how crazy we are, right? And, uh, you know, um, ministry can be rife with this kind of uh, behavior. 
So one of the things Paul is encouraging the church is, hey, let the Lord take care of some things. There is a Holy Spirit. You don't have to take vengeance. You don't have to take retribution. You don't always have to fix it. Just because you see it, does it, guys, this would be primarily for us, just because you see it doesn't mean you have to fix it. Right? Have you learned that when your wife's talking to you and you try to fix it for her, she gets really upset? Why? What is she wanting? I just want you to listen. I don't need you to fix it. I just want you to hear me. But when they're talking to us from a guy filter, it sounds like they're asking us to fix it. So we jump in and then we get bit. What are you doing? Right? And that happens in neighborhoods, that happens in schools, that happens at work. Right? We, it, it's part of the fall. And it's one that Paul is saying we have to be on guard with. All of us. My, me, you, us. Be on guard with because we can be susceptible to the same um, sort of thing. And then the last one is work with your hands. Now, uh, in this one, there's a couple uh, cultural contexts. First of all, the Greeks disdained manual labor. Uh, they did not see manual labor as something that carried great honor. Slaves and servants were meant to do manual labor, but if you were a true Greek, you were a warrior or an aristocrat or a politician, and you didn't do manual labor. And so a lot of them felt like manual labor was below their... Right because the riots kicked up, they're now part of the church. Some of them lost their positions and so in order to feed themselves, they had to do work. And they were like, icky, dirty, I don't want to. And, and it was a cultural thing. It was built in as well. So uh, they, rather than working, they wanted to be on the dole. Does that sound familiar? Right? They just wanted to be on the dole and find a benefactor, and the benefactor would provide their food, and they wouldn't have to work, and then they would be able to sit on the hill and wait till Jesus came. And Paul's going, nope, 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 nope. Yes, the Lord's coming back. Yes, it's important. Yes, we have to focus on it. But that is no excuse. You have to work. You have to provide for your family because it makes an impression how outsiders see you. And if you are industrious, that tells them something. Uh, I wanted to do a whole thing here on the Puritan work ethic. There's some, that, that gets so slandered these days, but there's some beautiful, beautiful things that comes out of the Puritan work ethic. And this week, if you want to look at that, just go to Google and type in Puritan work ethic and read some of the things by Richard Baxter and some of the guys, what they wrote. And it all echoes this kind of thing that Paul was talking about, that it was an honor and a good thing uh, to work with your hands. Paul lays out that their labor, indeed our labor, where God has... You ever get tired of your job? You ever sit there and say, why am I doing this? Is this accomplishing anything? Sure, we all have been there, right? But again, Paul says, look towards heaven, recognize that your labor, your job has been given by God. It is a God-ordained thing, and you learn something about God when you take your work seriously. What is Paul driving at? What Paul's driving at is the importance of being self-motivated in this area. 
not always having someone to push you, uh, not always having someone to tell you what you should do, right? When you raise a teenager, you, you, what are you trying to do? Get them to own it. I tell Matt, Matt, boys play, men are responsible. Okay? And there's a difference between the flesh and the spirit there. And I'm trying to get him to understand this, Matt, this is your job. Right now, this is your job, and that's going to translate to another job, and that's going to translate to another job, and then you'll get married, you'll have another job, and then you'll be working to provide for a family. And it's really important that you learn how to provide for your family well. And how you learn to do that is by doing these little jobs well first. And then he gives me that look. Huh? Right? But you've got to stay with it, right? You've got to stay with it. It also brings out another that in the God-given enterprise of work, which we know uh, has changed dramatically because of the fall, and it's much more difficult than it should be. But he's also pointing out in this enterprise of the fall that when God gives us work, be that ladies in the home, be that ladies in the workplace, be that guys in the home, be that guys in the workplace, wherever he gives us that work, we should act forthrightly, we should act honestly and we should give a good effort, right? Honest days, honest days, dollar for honest days work, right? Kind of thing. Uh, you don't hear much of that anymore. Now it seems to be how much can you get away with without doing your job, right? Many of you are in workplaces and minds just names came to your mind, right? Ding, ding, ding. Because we now live in a culture that you cannot fire somebody if they're doing a bad job. And it's twisting to the point where you're almost firing the people who are doing a good job. So we're like, ah, doesn't matter. Do a good job. Do a good job. What's your station of life right now? Where has God in his sovereign grace placed you in terms of responsibility and in terms of work? Right? Not just employment, but work. My wife does not have a, a job, so to speak. She works harder than anybody I know. All right? She's very diligent in her work. And, and that's a blessing to our family. It's a blessing to my kids. They don't even realize it yet, but they'll look back in 20 years and go, wow, that's what mom did? I look at my mom. She raised eight kids. And I go, how did she do that? And then I think of my grandmother who had 15. And I'm thinking... Boy, you talk about some people who are faithful in their work. You start to realize, I did not appreciate it at the time. And here's the thing. We don't always get rewarded just because we did a good job, right? You'll see the effects later. Meantime, trust Jesus and do your job. I know that's a patriot slogan, so don't. I'm all in on the hawks, right? But they got something right with that. Do your job. We saw when the Seahawks played Green Bay, somebody didn't do their job. Instead of blocking who they were supposed to block, they tried to catch the onside kick and got in the way of the person who was supposed to catch the onside kick, one of the star receivers on the team, Jordy Nelson. And as a result, the Seahawks ended up winning that game. Do you think that result would have happened if he had just done his job? That that now has cost him his job, and he's no longer with the Packers. Right? Yeah, Vikings signed him. <laughs> As only Rich would know and be excited about. <laughs> All right, does it make sense? 
we're doing our work for God. It, the Bible, Paul talks later in many different Do your work as unto the Lord. You're not doing it just for your boss. You're not just doing it because you have to. You're doing it as unto the Lord. Find some places where you do your work. Look, there's in everybody's uh, arena and sphere of work, there's something that nobody wants to do. There's some dirty little job that nobody wants to take on. And everybody walks by it and goes, yeah, that should be done, but nobody will do it. Why not be the person to do it? Why not do it as unto the Lord? Not because you'll get rewarded for it, but do it as unto the Lord because that can be done and God has given you the grace and power to do it. That's the spirit that Paul's talking to the Thessalonian church. We're going to come back next week and we're going to be looking at uh, the return of Christ. It gets pretty exciting at this point, so I encourage you to come back, but let's close in prayer. Father, some of these are pretty practical bullet points. And... Uh, one of them probably stood out more than another this morning as we've talked. And if it has, then may we take that as from you and may we take that from your spirit and as a, a teaching point, a learning point, a walking point with you this week as we go through the week and the work and the place that you've given us to sovereignly operate in. And we ask you for that grace in your name. Amen.